0: This episode of Zero to Travel is brought to you by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder with seven drive modes. The Pathfinder's available. Intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. If you
1: can unlock the cheap flight aspect of it, then you can start to get so many more vacations than you were before. And you can feel much more confident that going forward, you can continue to travel at that pace because you can continue to get all those deals.
0: You just heard a clip from my interview today with Scott Keys, And if you want to book better, cheaper flights, I mean, what traveler doesn't? You do not want to miss this episode. Scott is a true expert. He's the founder of Scott's Cheap Flights. They have over 2 million subscribers. And today he explains why we've been searching for airfare the wrong way. He shares strategies that have saved his 2 million subscribers a collective $500 million on airfare. I mean, this guy has literally spent almost every day of his life for years finding people cheap flights, and he shares some incredible advice in this show. First of all, from a mindset perspective, this episode can really change the way you think about travel and booking flights, and Scott's philosophy around travel and booking better, cheaper flights is... Also paired with a ton of practical advice to help you actually do it. We talk about things like when to book flights, where to search for flights, and where to actually book them, why there's a difference between those two, some of your best practices after booking, all around techniques and strategies to help you travel more. That's what this show's all about. That's what Scott's business is all about. We want to help you travel the world, and today's episode is going to do just that. So buckle up, strap in. Thanks for being here, and... Hey there, it's Jason with ZeroToTravel.com. Welcome to the show. Thanks for hanging out, letting me bring a little travel into your ears today. This is the show to help you travel the world on your terms, to fill your life with as much travel as you desire, no matter what your situation or experience. As I mentioned at the top of the show, Scott Keyes is here. He has a new book called Take More Vacations, How to Search Better, Book Cheaper, and Travel the World. Highly recommend this book. It gives you all the strategies you need to book flights, but also fundamental understanding of why these strategies work and an approach to booking flights that just might change the way you travel forever. You will hear more about that in today's interview. It's pretty amazing how much the flight booking process can impact your overall trip in more ways than you might think. I'll share some thoughts around that after the interview segment so stick around for that plus I'll leave you with a quote and I've got to shout out somebody in this community who's spending their first week doing something for the first time so I want to give them some congrats give them a little love so stick around for all of that now let's slip and slide into today's interview and I will see you on the other side my friend Salida del Pueblo TAP Air Portugal Siete, tres, tres. Destino o porto. Por Portugal flight. Well, I have the pleasure of being on the line here with Scott Keyes, who is the founder of Scott's Cheap Flights, a travel platform with over 2 million members around the world. It's been called the travel world's best kept secret. He's also the author of a new book with maybe one of the best book titles I've ever heard, at least in travel. Take More Vacations, How to Search Better, Book Cheaper, and Travel the World. Well done, Scott. Welcome to the Zero to Travel podcast, my friend.
1: Jason, thank you so much for having me.
0: It's my pleasure. Um, excited to pick your brain. I mean, we've got a true expert here, so we're going to get you all listening tips on how to find the absolute best flight deals out there. You're in Portland, right? I mean, it's... Crazy hot there right now, isn't it? It's a heat wave right now.
1: Yes, it is. And not only that, but um, so many of us live in Portland, move to Portland because we couldn't handle those extreme temperatures is why we don't live in Arizona. And uh, it's been pretty brutal. I'm not going to lie. Uh, but thankfully, the heat wave is past us. And and let's just fingers crossed it doesn't happen again anytime soon.
0: Yeah. How is? How did you end up there? Did you grow up there or...
1: No, so um, my brother actually moved here uh, um, some number of years ago, and he had uh, uh, young twins and gave the hard sell to the rest of the family to come move out. Luckily enough, I love Portland. It's one of my favorite cities in the country, one of my favorite cities in the world. And uh, I always feel like I have to bite my tongue just a little bit when I'm talking about Portland because I'm going to come across as a total fanboy otherwise. But uh, needless to say, it was not a hard sell. That needed on my end, we were really excited to move out here. We came from uh, Colorado before that and uh, been out here for going on five years.
0: Did you grow up in Colorado or were you just living out there?
1: No, I grew up in Ohio, actually. Southwest Ohio, just a small little town out there called Yellow Springs. The only reason anybody's ever heard of it is that it's the hometown of Dave Chappelle,
0: yeah. Okay. It sounded familiar. I was like, how do I know Yellowstone?
1: Yeah, green? exactly. He's kind of put it on the map. But otherwise, you know, I mean, it's just this sleepy little town in Southwest Ohio that's 3,500 people and surrounded by cornfields. But it was a gr- I loved growing up there. It was a real kind of fun place to uh, uh, to be. And then been all over since then, you know, went to college in California and lived in DC and Mexico and uh, Colorado and now out in Oregon.
0: Colorado is my. I feel like it's my true home in a lot of ways because uh, I was living in Boulder before I moved to Norway.
1: It's beautiful. I'm just having the mountains in the background to, to, to look at and just kind of ground you and, and orient you is such a special thing out there.
0: Yeah. You know, everybody in Colorado likes to say that there's average of 300 days of sunshine a year. It's like such a popular thing. And, you know, but until you leave that and you sort of reverse it like I have, then you really appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> that sunshine. Yeah, yeah
1: exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Quite the opposite out here in Portland.
0: So yeah, we were talking a little bit beforehand. It sounds like you're an, in an international couple as well.
1: That's right. So my uh, you know, my American grew up uh, in the US. My wife's actually Ukrainian. Well, she grew up in Ukraine, spent the first 16 years of her life there and then moved to the US um, in America now. But uh, kind of one of those things where it's just been a, a fun thing in our household because uh, uh, you know, live with my mother's law in law as well, and so I hear Russian in the household as often as I hear English, and we're trying to raise our young daughter to be bilingual, both uh, both English and Russian.
0: Ha- do you speak any Russian now? Or uh, I I know some words.
1: I've picked up uh, uh, words here and there, but my daughter knows more Russian than I do, and she's two and a half. So uh, I definitely have a long way to go.
0: Yeah. So I got worried because I have uh, two kids and you know I'm like one day they're going to be able to say things and I'm not going to understand and then I'm going to be in serious trouble so I better learn this language so <laughs>
1: yeah it's one of the reasons why I'm trying to uh secretly push her towards speaking spanish as well because I know Enough Spanish to get by. My wife and mother in law know very little Spanish. And so maybe that can be me and my daughter's secret language, because she already gets one with uh with the rest of the family.
0: Right. <laughs> That's a good idea. What kind of got you into travel? Well, I mean, it's like sometimes it's an amalgamation of experiences just growing up, and other times it, it might be like a light bulb moment type of trip thing. I'm not sure what the case was with you.
1: Yeah. So it was a very kind of serendipitous path to uh starting this bizarre career that I have now as a cheap flight
0: expert that you invented yourself, by the way, uh, yeah
1: awesome. exactly. <laughs> I might be the only person whose job title is cheap, chief flight expert in, uh, in the country, in the world. But I'm so grateful to have it because I get to wake up every day helping other people get cheap flights. I mean, what a what a glorious uh, uh, way to spend your time. But, I, you know, I wasn't always a cheap flight expert. I used to actually work as a journalist for years. Uh, I was a political journalist working based out of Washington, D.C., traveling around the country, covering, you know, campaigns and conventions and 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 um, conferences, all this uh, type of stuff. And the funny thing, though, about journalism, well, I, you know, it's, it's A very uh, uh, laudable profession. It's very important. I have so much respect and admiration for journalists. It's not a job you go into for uh, hefty financial remuneration. Like it is just, you know, I was making $34,000 a year coming out of college and I was living in one of the most expensive cities in the country. And so uh, I was 22 years old. I was making what for me was quite a bit of money, but also, you know, look, I had bills to pay, i rent, you know, all of these types of things. And I wanted to also be able to travel. I wanted to be able to visit Europe and Asia and Africa and all these places I'd never been, but I knew, gosh, all these people out there are getting cheap flights somehow. And yet every time I seem to search for flights, it looks like they're really expensive. I could never seem to find those cheap flights that others were talking about. And so I kind of, Put myself, I kind of like put that journalist hat on and really like dove in and started to research, you know, why is it that the same flight will be $1,000 today and then $400 tomorrow? And how can you start to predict those things? And what sorts of trends exist? And what are all the sort of steps and tips and tricks that you can take as a traveler to make sure that you're not overpaying for flights? So I got really good at. Watching and sort of decoding airfare, and which then all ended up culminating in 2013 with the best deal that I've ever gotten in my life, still to this day, which was nonstop from New York City to Milan for 130 bucks round trip.
0: Yeah, was that a mistake fare? Must have been a mistake fare. Right? It was a
1: mistake fare. Yeah, it's actually okay. funny enough. Sold by a small Norwegian airline based out of, uh, I believe, I'm, it's pronounced Trumsa. Uh, yeah, the, the airline is, I, I'm going to butcher this, Widero, Wideroe. W okay. i d e r o e. That exists anymore. Yeah, I they I mean they mostly fly, I think like Arctic Circle type of flights, but they were allowed to sell United flights and were selling these flights from again from New York City to Milan for $130 round trip in in you know included two check bags, included you know, it's sort a of non-stop flight. It was great. And I took this trip. I had never had any intention of going to Milan, but when you see a price like that, it's like it doesn't require a whole lot of convincing. Uh and when I got back from this you know, amazing trip to Milan, all my friends and coworkers kept coming up to me and saying, Hey, Scott, you know, I heard about that great deal you got. Uh, listen, next time you find a deal like that, can you let me know so I can get in on it too? And rather than trying to remember every single person I needed to let know, I decided, well, why don't I just start a simple little email list? And that way I can let everybody know at once. And and so uh in that moment, Scott's Cheap Flights was born, but I had No idea because I was just, you know, I was just a journalist. This was just a a hobby, something I did for the love of the game, but not something I was doing with any sort of intention of starting a business. It was just the simplest way to let my friends know when I found a great deal. But over time, you know, it had grown large enough that uh, enough that, that, you know, there were like 5,000 people on the list uh, a couple years later as friends told their friends and other people signed up. And I realized, gosh, there's a real hunger, a real demand for this. I wonder if there's a business opportunity there. And so in 2015, took this just hobby of an email list and turned it into an actual uh, uh, company that today, like you mentioned, has more than 2 million members and more than 40 people uh, uh, on the team, which is is every time I say it, it feels like a pinch yourself type of thing. Like, I cannot believe that Scotty Flight says 40 Employees, but it's such a treat to be able to to get to do this work every day.
0: Well, congratulations on all that, by the way. I, I was going to ask you really quick: what's harder, growing a company to forty employees and two million members, or writing a book? <laughs> oh gosh, uh, <laughs> writing a book is kind of brutal, right? <laughs> it is. Well, because it's such a
1: solitary experience. You know, it's like you uh, you get your proposal, you write, you sort of your outline, you get an agent. If you're really lucky, you know, you get it, um, bid on and accepted by a publisher. And then you just kind of go dark for 12 months, like, 18 months. Out, guys. Long Good
0: luck running the ship. <laughs> yeah.
1: Because you're just sitting their heads down trying to focus on this thing. And so it's, you know, it's hard to say which one's more difficult because it was a totally different skill set. the types of things that make you productive and good at, at writing, especially like a long form uh, uh, work versus the types of things to grow, you know, a company and a membership base is much more day to day versus uh, the sort of long term planning. And so one of the reasons why I actually wanted to write this book and was so glad to do so is because I missed that process of writing that process of like, researching and digging in and really kind of you know, getting your paws uh, uh, dirty on a subject versus the more kind of day-to-day work that I'd been doing at, at SCF. and it was fun to sort of put eighteen months of effort into one thing and then see finally see the the fruits of your labor from it.
0: Yeah, and uh, I mean, the book's awesome. If you want to book cheap flights, it's got everything in it. <laughs> I think it, I think it lives up to the title. Take more vacations. Yeah. It's something I'm sure satisfying just about taking all the knowledge in your head and getting it out there and laying it and be like, all right, here's everything about this. <laughs> now you all have everything you need. <laughs> you have question? Yeah. Go get this book. Like there are many
1: reasons why I wrote this book, but one among them was the fact that for almost every single day for the past five years, I get asked, you know, Scott, how do you, how do you actually find cheap flights? Like, what's the secret? What can I do to get a better deal? And Rather than trying to you know, answer each question one-off, I realized, gosh, we need a more comprehensive approach in part because I think that getting cheap flights is not a matter of you know, a promo code. It's not a matter of clearing your cookies. It's not these simple little one-off like hacks or tactics. The way to get cheap flights, what I realized is that it's much more about uh, completely shifting your strategy, completely shifting the way that you Tend to pr- approach planning, vacation planning, and booking flights and whatnot. Because if you can master this and you can put yourself in a position that you are getting cheap flights regularly, then it just transforms your vacation life from something that you did maybe once a year, at least here in the US, to something you're doing three or four times a year and can always expect that there's going to be another cheap flight around the corner because you've gotten really good at mastering the strategy of getting cheap flights.
0: All right. Well, let's talk about that because since since we you brought it up, of course, this is like a huge part of what I wanted to talk to you about. I have other questions as well, but I don't want to wait too long to get into the flight stuff because you got a lot of knowledge to share here. Yeah. Finding cheap plane tickets. I mean, when you say the strategy or the philosophy, can you just break that down to somebody listening? Be like, okay, yeah, I love what Scott just said. I want to take four or five vacations a year or whatever the case is. Like what, what do you is, you know, because...
1: Yeah, I think we've been booking flights all wrong. I think that the, look, most of us say, yeah, I really want cheap flights. If I could get cheap flights like you do, Scott, I would, tra- I would take three, four, five vacations a year. But if I'm paying $1,000 to fly to Europe, I just can't afford to take more vacations than I am already. And so I I, I take to heart that people say they want cheap flights. And I take to heart the fact that, when you look at survey data, everybody says they want to travel more than they actually do. And so I was trying to figure out with this book, well, why is it that we don't take as many trips as we say we want to? What's holding us back? And I came up with two answers, basically. The first one is time. We don't have enough time. Um, I think there are certainly some people for which that's true, but I also look at a lot of data that says that for folks who get vacation time with uh, through their job, only 50% actually use all their vacation days most of us leave a lot of days on the table collectively we leave about a billion days a year of vacation time unused every single year and so i think the bigger culprit for most people that's stopping them from traveling more is the headache and expense and uncertainty of booking flights it's the it, it's partly financial but it's also partly just the mental aspect of you know you don't know is this flight a good deal? Is this a bad deal? Is the price going to go up tomorrow? Is it going to go down? Should I wait or should I book now? And all that uncertainty kind of adds to a real mental tax on planning your vacations and leads us to book fewer of them than they would if, let's say, in an alternative reality, all flights were just all of a sudden $200 round trip. Like, how? where would you go? How many trips would you take? For most of us, we would take four vacations a year, we would take way more than we do right now, because we felt confident that not only cheap flights were possible, all flights for $200, but that we could go wherever we wanted. We didn't just have to, you know, uh, uh, pick somewhere, Florida or somewhere that was kind of nearby and accessible. And so this is what I realized is that if you can unlock the cheap flight aspect of it, then you can start to get so many more vacations than you were before. And you can feel much more confident that going forward, you can continue to travel at that pace because you can continue to get all those deals. Now, what do I mean by uprooting your strategy and how we've been booking flights all wrong? Let me give you one example. Uh, The normal way of searching for flights actually accidentally leads people to overpay for flights. So the normal way is something I call the destination first method. Uh, It's a three-step process. Step one, you decide where you wanna go. Step two, you decide when you want to go there. And only on step three do you look, well, what are the flights cost? And by setting price as the last priority, it's not terribly surprising that we end up with some pretty expensive flights. And so instead, what I recommend is if cheap flights are a priority, make them the top priority. You know, Take that same three-step process and flip it on its head. Step one, where are there cheap flights out of my home airport? Step two, of those places that are cheap, which one interests me the most? Step three, what dates work for my schedule? And by setting price as the top priority rather than the last priority, that's how you get cheap flights and that's how you end up booking three or four vacations for the same price you used to pay for one.
0: This episode is brought to you by U.S. Bank. Recently, I went out for tacos and it wasn't even Friday. Yes, we have Taco Friday and enjoy the ride along the way learn more at nissanusa.com yeah i mean it makes a ton of sense and i think people listening you know for the independent traveler I, there is an openness i feel in terms of where to go sometimes you just really want to go to a place but there are a lot of different ways to get there right well let's now on the on the other side of that coin let's talk about the the strategy or some of the strategies you share in the book when you don't have flexibility and a good example of that might be a destination wedding or something, right? Like people are getting married on a certain weekend and, you know, everybody has to fly there and spend a bunch of money and you're like, why did they do this to me? No, (laughs) but, uh, you know, I mean, sometimes you just have to go to a certain place and be there at a certain time. So what do you do in that scenario?
1: That's right. So I'm glad you brought up this, this subject of flexibility, because I think it's one of the most important and one of the most misunderstood aspects of the cheap flight world. You know, the biggest objection I get when I'm out here preaching the cheap flight gospel is essentially, well, that's all well and good, but you that's only for people who have flexibility. I don't have flexibility. And so I can't, get cheap flights. I'm resigned to expensive flights. And I try to tell people, no, 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 that's absolutely not the case for a number of reasons. The first and foremost is that people talk about flexibility as though it's an on-off switch. Either you've got full flexibility or you've got no flexibility. When in reality it's a dimmer switch, you know, it goes there's a whole spectrum of how much flexibility you have. Now it's certainly the case that yes, if you have total flexibility, your odds of getting a cheap flight are better than if you have Zero flexibility, but oftentimes we have more flexibility than we might have realized. So let's say, um, let's say you are going to that destination wedding, and so the dates pretty well locked in, though not a hundred percent. You could still go a day or two earlier, you could come back a day or two later, Uh, but even let's say it's a destination wedding in Portugal, you know, beautiful area, really kind of flying overseas now you don't have flexibility about the dates, but you do have flexibility in the two main other areas where there uh, are where you kind of have some, some leeway and that's the airports you're flying um, to and from and when you book your flights. And so what I mean by that is, let's say you live in Philadelphia. You know, you might be searching for flights from Philadelphia to Lisbon and they might be like $900 for the dates that you need. And so rather than paying this inflated price, what you should be doing is, first off, seeing is there flexibility on either of the airports? So maybe flights from Philadelphia to Lisbon are 900 but flights from Newark to Lisbon are only $400. And then so the question to ask yourself is, is the taking the train from Philadelphia to Newark worth $500 to me? For most people I think the answer is going to be yes. I would rather save $500 by taking the train. It doesn't have to be, but you know, at least knowing what your options are is an important way to kind of give that context. Similarly on the on the destination end, maybe flights from Philadelphia to Lisbon are 900, but flights from Philadelphia to Madrid are only 3 or 400 and can you get from Madrid to Lisbon for under 500 bucks? Absolutely. Um Similarly with when you book, you know, you've got flexibility on when you actually book that flight. If you book it a couple weeks before you fly, it's almost certainly going to be quite a bit more expensive than if you had booked it a few months before. And if you started searching, you know, six, eight months ahead of time and only said, okay, I'm going to monitor this. I'm going to watch. And when that cheap flight pops up, that works my home airport, that's when I'm going to pull the trigger. That's oftentimes how you get a cheap flight, even when you have a little flexibility by checking and starting your search well in advance. Because the funny thing about airfares, there's not a single. Most of us talk about flights as though there's a single price. Oh, what does it cost to fly from you know to Portugal? What does it cost to fly to Hawaii? But in reality, there are you know airfare is not something where there's one price. It is constantly going up and going down. I like to give this example of a recent flight from Atlanta to Amsterdam that on Monday. Atlanta to Amsterdam, this flight was $800 round trip. On Tuesday, it was $300 round trip. And on Wednesday, it was $1,300 round trip. And it was the exact same flight. That's and the thing so, that recognizing- stresses you out, right? You right, don't want to make exactly. The but recognizing that today's expensive flight might be tomorrow's cheap flight. And this is why it's so important to be monitoring well in advance and be patient when it's expensive, but pull the trigger quickly when those flights are cheap.
0: Yeah, okay. Maybe you can break down the process for us how we actually search for a cheap flight or what your methodology would be. So let's pretend this entire podcast audience is gathered around you on your laptop. We're looking over your shoulder. We'll start with what maybe we're going a little journalistic here. We'll start with the when. First of all, when should we be looking for flights? Generally, I know there's no hard and fast rule, but in your experience, and obviously you have a lot of data on this. So, what is the ideal time frame for actually? booking a flight like i have to go back to the states this fall i'm going to start looking for flights soon but is there a sweet spot you know what i'm saying
1: there is, and I'm so glad you asked it that way because uh, one of the myths in the cheap flight world is this idea that there's a specific time of the week or day of the week when flights are cheapest.
0: Yeah, I've heard Oftentimes Tuesdays. Get, I don't know if yeah, that's true. Yeah, exactly.
1: Oftentimes you hear Tuesday at 1 p.m. or something yeah, like that when flights like are cheapest. That. And the fun, you know, I've got a whole chapter on these myths, but the funny thing about that one is that it used to be true about 20 years ago. And that was when airlines first started selling their tickets online. They really did have one day, you know, one specific predetermined time a week when they we would load their fares, and if you were one of the first people who booked a flight right after they loaded their new fares, you might get some of the handful of cheap flights that they had available or cheap seats that they had available. But the problem with that is that it, that dynamic of loading fares once a week manually has not been the case on how airlines set their prices for years. Nowadays airfare is set algorithmically and it's changing by the day, sometimes by the hour, sometimes even by the minute. So flights are not, there's not a specific time or day when flights are cheapest. But the here is instead the best approach to take, to think in what I t- call Goldilocks windows. This is a window in advance of travel when cheap flights are most likely to pop up. So at least in the US, if you're traveling domestically, Uh, The Goldilocks window is about one to three months in advance of travel for international flights. It's about two to eight months in advance. So it's not, you know,
0: far as eight months. huh?
1: Yeah, it can be. Um, It's not too early, not too late. You know, you don't want to wait. Till last minute because those flights tend to be very expensive because of business travelers. But oftentimes, actually, and especially with domestic flights, you really don't want to book too early because you know if there's a flight from let's say New York to Paris that's six hundred dollars, um, you know, eight or ten months out, like that's a decent price. It's a little bit better than normal, but we regularly see flights from New York to Paris for you know three hundred and fifty bucks, three hundred bucks round trip. And if you have already locked in your price at $600, well, you don't have a chance to go back and get the cheaper flight at $300 if that pops up later. And so those kind of thinking in terms of those Goldilocks windows and monitoring flights during them and remembering that not every flight is going to be cheap during those periods, but that's when your odds are best of a cheap flight popping up. And that's when you should really be kind of monitoring, paying attention, setting alerts, and especially checking your email inbox for those got cheap flights alerts
0: yeah okay so i I know you have your service then you can also set alerts on the airline website as well Mm -hmm. and
1: yeah and google flights kayak and wherever your preference
0: that specific thing okay all right so we're still hunched over your shoulder now maybe some times past we're eight months out seven months out i don't know you're like why are all these people still here (laughs) all right we're ready to book so Let's get into like, you know, what website are you are you using? Are you kind of using the aggregators? Are you going for the airline website? Are you doing like a search on multiple sites? And yeah, how do you do it? Let's like just walk us yeah, through I'm the both.
1: Yeah, I'm um, doing both. The general best practice is to search on one of the, uh, you know, flight search engines, one of these meta search sites that searches across the airlines. And that way you're seeing, you know... It, rather than being loyal to one airline, even if they might not always have the cheapest fares, the best way is actually just to be loyal to cheap flights, to be loyal to, if you're like, you know, I think I'm like most folks where they don't care that much if it's a Delta flight, if it's a United flight, if it's an Air France or whatever, they wanna get the cheapest fare possible and have it be a good flight too. Um, And so the best way to do that is to do one of these meta search sites. My personal favorite is Google Flights. Uh, but a I, I sort of insider secret is that they're basically all the same. There's no one flight search site where the fares are consistently cheapest. Nine times out of ten, they have the exact same fare or within you know five or ten bucks of each other. So the way to choose personally is just which user interface, which user experience do you like best? From you know, a lot of folks like Skyscanner, some folks like kayak. Priceline, for me, I like Google Flights the best. And the reason why is that not only is it lightning fast, but you have a lot of flexibility about wh- uh, like where you search. So let me give you an example. Let's take that Philadelphia to Portugal flight. You can search uh, up to seven origin airports and up to seven destination airports in a single search. And so what that means is you can put in as your origin, not just Philadelphia, but also all three of the New York airports and all three of the Washington DC area airports. So you're searching seven of the destination ones knowing, you know, I can get to any of these places pretty easily on the train if need be. And you can search seven destination airports. So Lisbon, Porto, Madrid, Barcelona, Paris, London, and Amsterdam. And it will show you instantly the cheapest fare on any one of those 49 routes, seven times seven, any one of those 49 routes over the entire calendar. And so what this is, why this is so great is that it makes it really simple for a cheap flight lover to know uh, what is the single cheapest option. And so what I'll do typically is I'll start out, I'll just search Philadelphia to Lisbon and I'll see what that fare is. But I just want the key is to not end your search there. You know, I'll start off searching that. I'll say, okay, these flights are 900 bucks. And then I'll see on those seven by seven, you know, all those US airports to all those Europe airports. Is there a significantly cheaper fare that way? Oh yeah, you know, New York to Madrid is only $300. And New York to Lisbon is only 350. And then you can kind of make an informed choice about which one you think is the best for your situation. Maybe the most convenient thing is just to, uh, uh, bite the bullet and buy that Philadelphia to Lisbon one or hold out for and hope it gets cheaper. But maybe you say, well, I've got a lot of time, but I don't have a lot of money. I'll take that train or that bus to New York and get that $350 flight to Lisbon. You know, the way that most of us book our flights is akin to going into a restaurant and, you know, the the waiter offers you the menu and you just brush it off and say, oh no, I'll have the filet mignon, please. Like most of us at least like to know what the other things would cost and, 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 and at least have a sense on how it all compares. But when we search for flights, we so often just search one thing. We come in with blinders and, 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 and and at the total expense of anything else, because um, I think for most folks, if they know I could say five hundred dollars if I just take a train up to New York. I think most people would love to do that, but so many of us miss it because we don't think any further than just searching our one route and and you know, pulling the trigger without without any regard for what better fares might be out there.
0: Yeah. Okay. That's an awesome breakdown. Thank you. Is Google Flight still sort of the overlay in some regard for the ITA matrix? Is that
1: it is, though they've mostly, they've uh, not denigrated ITA Matrix, but it's just, you know, 99% of people use Google Flights. And, and ITA Matrix is essentially the bones on which Google Flights was built. When yeah, do they, you, you use know, that they, at all? Uh, you know, I used to, but they've made Google Flights so good and so powerful now that it's really not necessary. Ten years ago, there was a lot that you could do on IT Matrix that you couldn't do on Google Flights. Nowadays, that's not the case. But one one, one thing uh, I just want to add a, a very slight addendum uh, to where to search for flights. Well, I always search for flights based on Google Flights. I want to separate that from where you should book your flights because while searching for flights is important to kind of compare across airlines, all things equal, it's generally best to book directly with the airline. And the reason why is that if anything goes awry with your flight, with your reservation, the flights get changed or canceled or a global pandemic hits and you need a refund, um, it's far simpler to do so if you've booked directly with the airline than if you also have to deal with a middleman and their policies as well as the airlines. Um, generally speaking, the price tends to be the same whether you book on a, directly with the airline or what's called an online travel agency like Expedia. So, uh, a, you know, unless it's a significant discount through an OTA, I generally tend to like. I generally search for my flights on Google flights, but I book them directly with the airline.
0: Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah, that's important. Thank you for sharing that. I-, I wanted to ask you about maybe some best practices after we book. So we're still over your shoulder. You've now gone directly to the airline website. You've booked the flight, or maybe you're, you're going through the process. You know, they ask, if, Do you want insurance? All this stuff. Like, should we take that? Uh, and what about? after we book, because I know there there's still a little bit of flexibility there. And I just was hoping you could kind of explain to people, you know, after they book, say they are like, oh my God, it just got cheaper again, or something else happens and, and they have uh, some changes that need to be made to their trip. Like how can we set ourselves up for giving ourselves the most flexibility as uh, humanly possible?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So the first thing to be aware of for um, the American listeners is that there is a federal law called the twenty-four hour rule, which you may not know about, but you are automatically entitled to. Again, as long as you book directly with the airline, and that what that says is that as long as you book directly with the airline, you have twenty-four hours from the moment you hit purchase, during which you can cancel your flight purchase and get a full cash refund. And can why I ask that you a quick so, question? I'm sorry. Yeah.
0: If you're overseas and you do like a VPN through the U.S., do you get the same or is it just buying through a U.S. airline or how, you know, is it apply for everybody no matter where they buy the ticket in the world?
1: It applies for everybody as long as the flight is taking off or departing from a U.S. airport. Now, it doesn't you can doesn't matter if you're a U.S. citizen or if you're uh, a non-U.S. citizen. It doesn't matter if it's a U.S. airline or a non-U.S. airline, as long as it takes off or departs from a U.S. airport, then you're good. Um, and so, this 24-hour rule. Why it's so important is okay. Let's take an example from a, uh, a few weeks ago. There were some amazing flights that popped up from the U.S. from all over the U.S. to Japan uh, for flights, even in 2022, as low as 350 bucks round trip. And we were like, oh, my gosh, these are amazing fares. So we sent them out to our members. About five hours after we sent out those deals uh, on, I believe, United, then American Airlines decided they wanted to start what's called a fare war. What they did was that they uh, started offering $300 flights to Japan from all over the U.S. And so what did United do? A couple hours after that, they started offering $250 flights to Japan.
0: And I just imagine Scott's Cheap Flights, like, like that scene in Boiler Room, where oh, everybody's scrambling I mean, and the phones it, are, you know, it's, people it's are it's going- It's fortunate
1: that. we're an all-remote company, or we, it would have been total pandemonium. <laughs> Juice flying but, everywhere and uh. <laughs> Yeah, exactly, exactly. And so, but here's why the 24-hour rule can benefit you. Let's say you booked that original $350 flight, but then six hours later- it, the fares dropped all the way down to $202 round trip, which it did in this case. What you can do is book that new $202 round trip flight and then go back and cancel your old $350 flight, get a full cash refund for it, and find yourself the holder of a new even cheaper flight. Now, this can be the case whether it's a cheaper flight. Maybe you had originally booked a connecting flight and then a nonstop one pops up at the same price, there are any number of cases. And so keeping an eye on the flight you booked or similar flights for the 24 hours after you booked is really important because if it gets significantly better, you're still within that window where you can get a free cash, you know, full cash refund and be able to get the better flight, uh, you know, no questions asked. So that's the big thing uh, um, you want to make sure you're aware of right away. But then the other change that happened with flexibility is um, quietly during the pandemic, airlines got rid of what are called change fees. You know, pre-pandemic you had to pay two, three, four, five hundred dollars, sometimes more, if you just to change your travel dates. Uh, the airlines got rid of that for the most part in the U.S. So now all the major U.S. airlines—you know, American, Delta, United, JetBlue, Hawaiian. Alaska all joined Southwest in saying that as long as you booked in main economy or higher, as long as you didn't book one of the basic economy tickets, you automatically have flexibility so that you can change your dates later without having to pay any penalty to do so. Now, if your new dates are more expensive, you've got to cover that fare difference. But if the new dates are cheaper, you actually get the difference back in the form of a travel credit. So all the more reason to be prioritizing cheap flights. Now you know this doesn't unfortunately apply to basic economy tickets. Those your dates are still pretty well locked in. But the good news is that this this getting rid of change fees is something the airlines have said is a permanent uh, uh, alteration that you are never going to have to uh, pay those change fees again. Now how long how how permanent is permanent? Who the heck knows? But I would be very confident that we're not going to see these again in the next at least five to ten years.
0: Okay. Thanks for that. Yeah. So I just wanted to make sure on one thing with the 24-hour rule, as long as the origin point is in the U.S., is it okay if it's an overseas flight? Does that 24-hour rule still apply? It doesn't have to leave and land in the United States. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Okay.
1: Either or as long as the flight either leaves from a U.S. airport or lands in a U.S. airport, even if it was departing, let's say, from Europe.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's huge because, well, there are a variety of reasons why you might want to have that in your back pocket, right?
1: <laughs> well, and let me let me give you an example. I mean, you know, we talked about if the fare gets cheaper, if a nonstop flight pops up rather than connecting one. But where you see it actually really important is when a what's called a mistake fare pops up. That hundred thirty dollar flight to Milan that I got uh, that kicked off Scott's cheap flights. That was a fare that the airline did not mean to sell for hundred thirty dollars. They probably meant to sell it for thirteen hundred dollars, and they forgot a zero at the end. When you find a mistake fare, they don't tend to last very long. Usually, a matter of hours, and so the best practice, rather than you know uh, waiting, you know sleeping on it, uh, uh, seeing how you feel tomorrow, by which time the mistake fare is almost certainly going to be gone. The best practice is instead to just book the flight and recognize that by booking it you what you've done is you've locked in the price for 24 hours and you've given yourself 24 hours to decide do i want to keep this flight or do i want to cancel and get my get all my money back um and, and you know that's going to be the way that you if you're not 100% sure you want a deal that you know when a mistake fare pops up still booking it locking it in and then giving yourself time to decide is going to be a much more fruitful uh, uh, path than just hoping it'll still be around tomorrow. In which case, all you know, ninety-nine times out of a hundred, it won't be.
0: Okay. Let's say we do have to book some flights last minute, which tends to happen. And I know you've covered a lot of strategies in terms of flexibility, being flexible with maybe the airports you're flying in and out of, it, things like that. Is there anything we missed that might apply to last-minute flights, or is it just all of those techniques kind of applied?
1: Yeah, so last minute flights, like you mentioned, tend to be very expensive. Uh, uh, and the reason why is business travel. Airlines realized that, you know, decades ago, airlines would slash the price on unfilled seats at the last minute because they reasoned if any flight, any seat that's unfilled, as long as soon as the uh, airplane door closes, it's just lost potential revenue. So we want to sit, fill as many seats as possible. What the airlines realized uh, 30 or 40 years ago was that most of the people booking last-minute flights weren't vacationers like you and I. They weren't leisure travelers. It was business travelers who, A, didn't know their plans until maybe a week or two before travel, and B, didn't care what the flight cost because it was their company paying, not them. And so the airlines realized whoa, we shouldn't be slashing the price to fill these seats. We should actually be jacking up the price in order to get as much potential money from business travelers as possible, Um, even if that means some number of unfilled seats on the plane. So this is why you want to avoid uh, booking last-minute flights. And this is why you want to uh, kind of disabuse yourself of the idea that, oh, maybe if I just hold out to the last minute, a cheap flight will pop up. Almost never will. But if you do find yourself in a situation, let's just say you had thought you needed to work uh, next week, but I don't know. Your company just decides. It's a week-long holiday. Everybody's on break. Like, oh, my gosh, I should go somewhere. Um, I all of a sudden have a week free. The best way the, – the way that you can put yourself in the best position to get a cheap flight even last minute are, A, keeping your destination as open and flexible as possible. You know, I talk in the book about this idea of a cheap flight bullseye. If you say, I wanna go to Hawaii August 24th through 31st, that's a very narrow bullseye and it's very unlikely that a cheap flight is gonna pop up. But if you say, I wanna go to Hawaii anytime in August, that's a little bit bigger. You say, I wanna go to Hawaii anytime in the summer or fall, that's even bigger. Say, I wanna go take a vacation anywhere Anytime the rest of this year—that's anywhere much where the water's,
0: bigger, water's
1: blue. Bam! Exactly. That's <laughs> a much bigger bullseye, and you're much more likely to find uh, to you know end up being able to get a cheap flight than if you had focused very narrowly on one set destination and one set of dates. And so, if you're booking last minute, rather than focusing in just on one narrow place, keep your options as broad as op- as possible. Not only keeping an eye on what we've sent you, it's got cheap flights, but looking at like Google Flights has a great, what's called Explore tool where you can say, here are my travel dates or, you know, I want to go for one week in July and you can literally look at a map of the entire world and they'll show you all the different fares from your home airport. And so you can get a sense, okay, maybe Portugal is really expensive, but flights to Aruba are actually really cheap right now. Do I want to go to Aruba for $300? Yeah great, let's go. And so the more you can kind of keep your options open, the better your odds of getting a cheap flight will be.
0: I love that. All right. Uh, Another thing I love that hasn't happened very often, Scott, but getting in those business class seats or those first class seats where you're kicking back and you're just like, man, this is the way to fly. But they're uh, usually pretty expensive unless, you know, you can use some points and miles and, and things like that. But just wanted you to share any techniques you have or strategies or hacks around uh what do you like the word hack or not? I don't know if you um,
1: I, I've got no problem with it. I think where it leads people a little bit astray is in thinking that you can just oh, there's some secret promo code. Oh, I just need to do this one, you know, thing different that, that, and that'll that'll get me cheap flights. When in reality, I think it's a much more of a, a an overhaul of your strategy in order to get cheap flights than than just one little kind of hack here or there.
0: Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, how do we get into the business class seats?
1: Yeah. So first off, you're absolutely right that by and large, uh, uh, business class seats are significantly more expensive than economy seats, not just like double or triple, usually it's five to 10 times the price. And so recognizing that, uh, uh, you know, what the price point you could expect to pay, like a normal flight from US to Europe, uh, gosh, I mean, you know, from New York to Europe, normal economy flight maybe six, seven hundred dollars. But a normal business class flight probably closer to twenty five hundred dollars. And so you're talking quite a bit higher chunk of change. Um, the most accessible way for people to get those, if they're not, you know, one top one percent, uh, uh, not secret millionaires, is through points and miles. This is one where, where where you can get a lot, like a much higher value for your points and miles. Than if you're spending them on economy flights. It's still going to cost significantly more to find business class uh, in, in terms of the miles you spend. But oftentimes you'll find those business class seats for, let's say, double the price of the economy seat rather than five to 10 times uh, the price as it is if you're paying with cash. Um, so getting really good at the points and miles game, you know, there are a lot of great research out there. The points guy, view from the wing, frequent miler, um, uh, uh, but it, it it requires a certain personality, a certain obsessiveness with points and miles that I definitely have. But I recognize is not for everybody. And so, if you're somebody I just really want to fly, I you know I don't want to figure out the whole credit card points and miles game. Um, two pieces of advice: first is uh, uh, you know like we talked about with those last minute flights, the better the more you can keep your options open and and not deciding in advance. Where exactly you're going to go, or when exactly you're going to go there, the bigger your cheap flights bullseye, the better your odds of getting a a cheap business class flight. Um, And again, remembering that a cheap business class flight to Europe is going to be like fifteen hundred dollars rather than three hundred dollars in economy. But then, second, when those mistake business class mistake fares pop up, they're quite rare. You know, maybe once or twice a year. But jumping on them quickly. And being willing to fly out of an airport that's not your own airport is going to be your best bet. And so let me give you an example. Back in 2018, we found a mistake fare from San Francisco or LA over to all over Southeast Asia. We're talking Bangkok, Bali, Vietnam, uh, 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 elsewhere for as little as $560 round trip. Again, in business class, we're talking live flat seats, champagne, you know, the works. Um, Not only was that, you know, a, a seat that normally would sell for $5,000. And we had thousands of Scott Street Flights members who got this deal. I had like dozens of teammates on the Scott Street Flights team who got this deal, including a couple of folks, for instance, who lived up in Seattle. And so remembering that this is actually one of those deals that's so good, a business class mistake fare, that it's worth it to get a separate flight down from Seattle to San Francisco and then fly onward in that business class mistake fair rather than just saying, oh, well, it's not out of my home airport, so I'm, I'm going to skip this one. Um, you know, kind of casting a wider net is going to help you uh, uh, like increase your odds of getting one of those uh, uh, really kind of rare but valuable business class deals.
0: Yeah, how do you find out about the mistake fairs? I mean, obviously, that's what you guys do so people can join your service. Are there other ways? It seems like it's pretty... Complicated. You have to be paying attention. Would you love to have an incredible cup of coffee every day? I've tried it all. I've done the pour over, I've done the French press, but I tasted an Aeropress coffee many years ago and immediately I was sold. I had to get one. Aeropress is a patented three in one brew technology. This combines the flavor benefits of espresso, pour over, and French press all into one compact portable device Sign up over there at zero2travel to travel.com slash trip to get all the details. Thanks for listening and hope to see you there.
1: Yeah. You know, airfare is one of those funny things where, um, they, you know, I'm, I'm often asked, like, what's the secret sauce, guy? Like, how do you guys find all these cheap flights? And and I'm glad to give the answer. It's not uh, it's not something we uh, consider proprietary. It's that we are searching for flights 16, 18, 20 hours a day. And the old fashioned way, that elbow grease, that shoe leather. And look, I I, searching for flights is one of those things that for most people is, it's a chore and it's a bore. For me, I love searching for flights because for whatever reason, that's the, you know, that's the way God made me. And I just enjoy the the hunt. But for most people, they're like, I've got way better things to do. I've got other things. I cannot be bothered. And so you can searching for flights 16, 18, 20 hours a day, you probably won't miss it when those rare mistake fares pop up, but that's what we exist for. So that for the folks who don't want to be chained to their computer and searching for flights 24 seven, we can make sure that you're still never going to miss it when a great deal pops up out of your home airport.
0: Cool. I like that you had a chapter in the book uh, that I read the title of it. it was chapter 10. Should you take that trip? How to think about over tourism and emission this is important. I wanted to hear your thoughts on this.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So look, there, there, there are two questions that I think a lot of folks grapple with as they're taking uh, uh, trips. And, and, and one is, you know, over tourism, is this, Is how big a problem is this? Am I contributing? And, and, and emissions like climate change is real and how much is um, the flight, my vacation leading into that. And so let's take them one by one. Over tourism is something that uh, I understand the the, the concern, and there's certainly a lot of excesses that need to be curbed. But um, here's the reason why I don't put nearly as much concern with the idea of over tourism as as I think a lot of folks do. One of the things I love about being in an airplane and flying somewhere is seeing just how massive the world is, and how unpopulated or or sparsely populated the vast, vast, vast majority of it is. And so, look. Most places, you know, there are a few iconic spots around the world, Paris, Venice, Barcelona, you know, that are going to be crowded and you can expect that, Disney World. But there are a million bajillion places other than those ones. And, And, you know, it's not your sort of place to say, oh, no other tour should be able to go to, to Paris, but me, or like we should really limit the number of people because for most of travel history, we did limit it. We did say only the people can go here who are, you know, aristocratic, who are rich, who are often white or male, or who have a, the this ungodly amount of money that allows them to do that. And I think the fact that in the past uh, uh, 10 years, especially, we have been living in what I call the golden age of cheap flights, and travel has become so much more democratized, where uh, uh, people around the you know the world can be able to visit some of these iconic sites around the world and afford to do so. I don't view that as a negative thing. I view that as a huge plus. Like what a wonderful thing to be able to share the world's uh, iconic sites rather than walling them off and saying this is only for you know the landed gentry and 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 whatnot. Um, And if crowds really rub you the wrong way, go to somewhere else. Like go to one of these. There are are so many places around the world that would love your tourism dollars that are beautiful, amazing, wonderful places that are not named Barcelona or Venice or Disney World or Paris. And you should, uh, you know, I, I like I'm one of those people I hate tourism crowds I wish every place I love to go didn't have a ton of tourists around but I also recognize that's not on me you know that's that's like one snowflake blaming all the others for the avalanche and and I'm just gonna keep going to other places and hope to find other places that really resonate with me the other last thing I'll say on over tourism is that we often get stuck thinking with a very sort of tourist. Centric point of view, or just focusing on the traveler, and not recognizing some and and, and thinking of it as a zero sum game, where if I'm enjoying tourism, that must be at the at the expense of locals. There must be bad for the destination, and and I think that's a far too simplistic viewpoint. Because I remember this person that I, for instance, met in Cinque Terre, um, the the you know iconic Italian uh, seaside villages where you can hike between them, and. I met her and she, you know, I was asking her, I was like, well, what do you think about all the tourists here? Does it kind of bother you? And she was like, no, no, no. I think it's so wonderful because now I can, I grew up, when I grew up, um, you know, when I was growing up, I didn't expect to be able to raise a family here in my hometown. I thought I was going to have to move to Milan or some other big city to make a living. But now because there's, uh, uh, you know, tourism money, I was able to stay in my hometown, live here, raise a family here, and 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 live the life that I had wanted to. But I didn't think I was that was going to be possible. And so I think that often gets overlooked that for the ten percent of the world that's estimated whose job relies on tourism dollars to some extent, tourism is largely a huge benefit and helps uh, you know your local restaurant owner, your local uh, uh, tour operator, your local. Uh, uh, you know, small mom and pop B&B uh, type place. And th- that's, I think, something that we should really not overlook when we talk about tourism.
0: I mean, you've built an incredible company around something you love. So it w- I would be remiss if I didn't ask you for some of your best business tips for budding and current entrepreneurs who, you know, want to succeed at a certain level, but also still enjoy life. I mean, it seems like you know, that's a a part of this. We want to live, we want to travel, we want to do things. And I'm a big fan of the lifestyle business sort of model. Drop some knowledge here, man. (laughs) Mm, Man.
1: So this is one of those things where I feel a, a slight amount of sheepishness whenever I'm asked for, um, you know, what tips do you have for entrepreneurs or aspiring startup founders? Because I was not an aspiring entrepreneur. I was not somebody most Startups I think are founded by people who really want to start a company and then are just looking for their million dollar idea. But I was the total opposite. You know, I was a guy who never thought about starting a company, didn't really want to go into business, but I had this thing, cheap, you know, cheap flight email alerts that everybody kept demanding and everybody was asking for and only came to the realization, gosh, maybe there's a business opportunity here when it was just totally staring me in the face. And so there are a few things that I would that I think about that I think worked out well for me and hopefully maybe would work out well for some others. Um, the first thing was uh, focusing intensely on product market fit. You know, oftentimes we do so much planning early on for uh, writing out this business plan, Trying to think about how people are going to interact with the product and what, you know, are they going to like it or not like it? And what sort of marketing we're going to do. And all those plans are basically not worth the paper they're written on because you have no idea how the audience is going to interact with what you're building. And the best way to find that out is just to put it out there and start to just quickly grow. I mean, with Scott's Cheap Flights, the first emails that we sent out compared to today's emails were just horrendous. Like just, I mean, we were sending, you know, flights, while the flight alerts themselves, the the deals were very good. You know, I'd be sending flights from, uh, that were departing from Seattle and they would be going to people in Miami or I'd be sending, you know, deals uh, from, you know, New York to people in LA. Like we just didn't have the infrastructure yet to account for all those people. But if we had taken so much time and energy and everything to figure out you know to build that infrastructure it would have been at the expense of figuring out do people actually like what we're building here and recognize and seeing sort of what are those customer pain points so focusing very intensely very early on on trying to test your product and iterate on it in the real world rather than trying to make all your plans and then just hoping that they work out the last thing too that i would that i've focused on that I think served us well was, was not going all in from the beginning. I think we often, oftentimes in entrepreneurial circles, folk, you know, really kind of give plaudits to people. Oh yeah, he was all in, you know, he sold his house. He took a mortgage on his house. He, he sold off his kids, you know, college funds to really focus on this, this goal. And we hear about the winners. Like we hear when that works out really well. We don't hear about the 99% of companies who that who didn't that didn't work out for whose company failed and and went under and recognizing for myself early on that i didn't want to put all my eggs in one basket until i felt like this was had a high chance of success because i knew what the daunting odds were for most starting you know for most startups and most uh young companies they're not good and so i wanted to kind of get a sense what were people was this something people were willing to pay for And was this something that I felt like had a high degree of success? So, the last thing I'll mention here was with pricing. You know, I I took it from something that was a free product, something that I sent to people for fun as a hobby, to something that I was asking people to pay for, at least if they were going to be part of the premium tier. You know, we've got the free tier and premium tier. And um, rather, you know, recognizing that that is a really kind of difficult categorical shift for a lot of people to make to go from free to paid, I almost sort of ran a test where I set the price point so low that I just wanted to see, will people make that categorical shift? Will they take this from something they were getting for free to something that they're willing to pay for? And and that's why I set the price at $2 a month because I was like, I want this to be so cheap. Nobody's worried, oh, too rich for my blood. Set it low and see, are there enough people who say, yes, I will pull out my credit card. I will pay for this. Knowing that later on, I can optimize the price. Later on, I can see, you know, optimize other things, but I just want to see how many people will pull out their credit card and pay for this because I think that's the sort of biggest indicator. How many paying members can you get? And then later on, trying to get the right price point for it.
0: Awesome. Thank you. Um, I know we're out of time, man. I had questions about post COVID light world and travel and all that stuff. But maybe we can have you back on another time. We'll have to
1: do a round two sometime <laughs> later. I'm excited for that it. That would
0: be great. Uh, is the service right now just for the U.S.? Is that correct? It's just U.S. Right airports. now it's
1: just based, yeah, for folks who are uh, looking for flights out of U.S. Airports. Any plans
0: to... Not in the works right now,
1: but um, someday... Someday in the not too distant future, we're hoping to be able to expand.
0: Well, just add Oslo first. That's all I'm gonna Ah, ask. Selfishly. A little a little
1: personal point of personal (laughs) privilege. I like
0: it. Keep that in mind. Okay. The book again, Take More Vacations, How to Search Better, Book Cheaper, and Travel the World. And of course, Scott's cheapflights.com and put all of these links in the show notes. Scott, it was a real pleasure. Thanks for your time today. And yeah, I mean so much expert advice here. So everybody listening, just take it and run with it and Start booking those cheap flights.
1: (laughs) My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, Jason. This was really great. And I enjoyed chatting with you.
0: I appreciate your time. Take care. (laughs) That's the sound of me having my mind blown. Thank you, Scott, for stopping by the show, sharing so much with us today. And I'm sure if you're listening to this, you probably... Pretty glad you did, I would imagine. Uh, I think Scott covered so much ground in this show. Again, recommend that book if you want to go deeper and really have that fundamental knowledge you need to book better, cheaper flights in perpetuity. There you go. That's what Scott helps you do, and I appreciate his time here on the Zero to Travel podcast. You know, I am a sucker for some of the mindset side of things, and when it came to booking flights, I never really thought too much about how there could be a mindset around that. You know, Scott laid it out like just by changing your mindset can change the way you search for flights, the way you book them. And ultimately the places you go, where you travel to, it just opens up the world in a different way. And I think that's really valuable because, you know, on the surface, a flight is really designed to get your physical body from point A to point B. But When you approach it in a different way, when you search for flights in a different way, it can really define your trip. This has happened to me in the past before. I mean, I can think of one example. I spent about four months in Argentina, in Chile, down in South America, and the reason why it was four months was because when I called to book the ticket, they wouldn't let me stay any longer. That was the maximum I was allowed to book. I couldn't book a one-way ticket, and at the time, at least, and I needed to have a return. So I said, well, how long can I stay? And they gave me the return date, the latest possible one. And so I said, okay, set my return date for then. And that didn't mean I had to stick to that, but it did kind of put a bookend on my trip. And in a way to find the trip, right? Because I knew the amount of time I had. I wasn't sure if I was going to go back home after that, but it created a framework for the trip. And when you lock in some of these logistical things, of course. That's going to define your trip in some ways. And the biggest takeaway for me coming out of this interview is that flexibility, right? I mean, I think this is a theme that comes up often in the podcast is just maintaining flexibility as a traveler. The more flexible you are, the more the world is opened up to you, whether it's you know, being flexible around the type of work You'll do if you're just like, hey, I'm just going to do any work that gives me a travel experience or allows me to travel. Well, if you're willing to do pretty much anything and you're flexible, there are probably a lot more opportunities for that person than for the person who is super locked in and wanting to do one thing. And, you know, I want to work on a cruise line. I'm only going to work for this cruise line. I'm only going to do this position, whatever the case is. Uh, you're a lot more limited. And as we discussed today, flexibility in booking flights and and where you're going to go and how to maintain that flexibility when you're booking and searching for flights opens up the world a bit more, maybe forces you to consider destinations you hadn't thought about. Maybe that takes you in other different unexpected fun directions. Who knows? Flexibility is, um, I think, a really great thing to embrace and certainly something that travel has taught me the more I traveled the more flexible I think I became as a person after (laughs) sleeping in a variety of situations and having all of those things that can happen on the road (laughs) that can maybe throw you off or, or change your plans you know all of these things happen when you travel and the more you kind of get bombarded with different changes and challenges and things I think in some ways at least for me the more flexible of a human I became. And maybe you could interchange flexibility with open-mindedness. I'm not sure if they are two sides of the same coin or not, but nevertheless, being flexible, great way to travel the world and see more, in my humble opinion. Okay, I want to give a shout-out to uh, somebody in this community. I just got an email. Today, this caught my attention. The subject had her first week of digital nomad life. This is from Matt. He said, Hi, Jason. I will try to keep this brief. There's a lot I could say to you. Very thankful I had the podcast to get me through this past year while I was stuck in one place, but dreamed of and made steps towards a digital nomad life. Like many people, the abrupt change in my life caused by COVID made me rethink a lot of things. The pandemic started only a few months after I returned from a trip to Nepal for the Everest Base Camp Trek for my 40th birthday. I know you are a huge fan of Nepal. Absolutely amazing place. I'm an engineer and as many others did, my company went to remote work for COVID. I had a lot of time to think about what I wanted from life and I didn't want to return to the quote unquote distraction of rushing back and forth to work every day. It was a way to kill days without getting too bored and I enjoy the work, but it was not personally fulfilling. He goes on to say, I also had a thought regarding Nepal. Did I just do the coolest thing I'm ever going to do? That sounded sad, and I wouldn't accept it. I'm not sure how the become a digital nomad idea started to fester in my brain, but after it did, I couldn't stop it. Last week, I sold my dream home in central Philadelphia and hit the road in my Toyota 4Runner. I'm writing to you from a hotel in Austin where I have a work obligation this week. On Friday, I head to Colorado, then on to Utah for a few weeks, so... I just want to give Matt a shout out because he's out there living his dream, right? First week of digital nomad life, had that intention, and now he's out doing it. And one of the things that really stood out in this email to me was the, the thought he had when he went to Nepal and he came back and, and he was wondering to himself, did I just do the coolest thing I'm ever going to do? And he said, that sounded sad and I wouldn't accept it. I love that. I love that mindset. I mean, that is... I think that's a cool way to kind of end this show, right? I think it's motivating if you're thinking about something amazing you've done, and then perhaps, <laughs> you know, you get stuck in a situation like Matt, where we've all been in life, right? And maybe you're in a, a a place in life where like things aren't going exactly the way you want, or maybe the job isn't perfect or whatever. And I mean, not that there's any such thing as perfection, but you get my drift. I don't know, it's just that can be motivating. I, I love that. Kind of taking the power back. It's like, I'm not going to accept that, like, I did all these cool things before and I'm never going to do them again. That's not going to be the coolest thing I ever did. I'm going to top that and I'm going to top it again and again and again. And uh, I don't know. I just, I think that's fun. I think that's uh, positive and empowering. So, Matt, kudos to you, my friend. First week of digital nomad life. Hope you're enjoying it. Now, let me leave you with a quote, some words of wisdom from Dijalal Ad. Dean Rumi, who said, If light is in your heart, you will find your way home. Thanks for listening. Peace and love to you, and I will see you next time. Cheers. This podcast
1: has been brought to you by ZeroToTravel.com. Ideas and advice to make your travel dreams a reality.